This is uh, Luke 15, verse 1 through 10. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 1977... A 49-year-old German factory worker named Erwin Kreutz had decided he was going to visit the great city of San Francisco. And so he took his life savings. He had seen San Francisco portrayed in all kinds of movies and, and TV shows. And so he said, I am headed there. And so he boarded a plane from Frankfurt, Germany. And that plane flew across the Atlantic Ocean and landed in Bangor, Maine to refuel. But Kreutz, who worked in a brewery, had been known to enjoy the occasional beverage, and 17 beers in on the flight, heard the flight attendant, who knew he was headed to San Francisco, say, enjoy your time in San Francisco. Startled, he immediately got off the plane and thought, I must be where I'm supposed to be. So he spent the next three days wandering around the quaint city of Bangor, Maine, thinking that he was in San Francisco. A German man who uh, had a significant language barrier uh, spent three days there and and, uh, frequented some Chinese restaurants, which he knew were in San Francisco, uh, but realized, I must be in a suburb of the city. And so he hailed a taxi, and he said, please take me to downtown San Francisco. And the taxi driver looked at him like he was crazy and sped away. Finally, he found a, a person who could help him a little bit, and she realized He was not where he thought he was. And so uh, she got in contact with a friend uh, who could speak a little bit of German and realized the dilemma and the situation. Uh, The San Francisco Herald got a hold of the story and realized that there was a man all the way across the country who was supposed to be in their great city. And so they paid for him to fly to San Francisco, and they hosted him there for four days, in which the mayor of San Francisco presented him with a proclamation that said San Francisco does, in fact, exist. Kreutz then boarded a plane after four magnificent days in San Francisco, holding a sign that just said, please let me off in Frankfurt. True story. Uh, Have you ever been lost? You've been lost. You're a lost person sometimes. Uh, I got lost all the time as a child. I'll tell you a story about that later. And Jesus tells a story about some lost things. And let's kind of set the scene because stepping into Luke chapter 15, we need to look at the preceding verses just a little bit. In Luke chapter 14, 
We read that there are some tax collectors and sinners who are responding to Jesus' invitation, and one that we've extended in this room, those who have ears to hear should listen. That's what Luke 14, 35 says, those who have ears to hear should listen, and those who show up to listen are those who have the reputation of sinners. And the complaint lodged against Jesus in this moment is that he welcomes sinners and eats with them. Some gathered to listen, others gathered to complain. Sinners. That's the reference made by the religious people, by the elites. And here's what they're saying. These are people whose identity is their sin. These are people who you could point at them and say, oh, I know exactly what you've done. These are prostitutes, drunks, cheats, adulterers, liars, embezzlers, pornographers, swindlers, people who wore their sin like a scarlet letter and the entire town knew what it was. And the scandal is that Jesus feels no shame. He makes it no secret that he loves the sinner. He he doesn't deflect or defend, but instead he directly comments on this accusation and expresses that this is precisely what he's arrived to do. And he's intent on doing it. Sinners, see, here's why Jesus loves them. They are those with no pretend righteousness to stand on. They know that they're lost. Therefore, they have ears to hear. Those who have claimed to have a righteousness of their own, these Pharisees, are not listening, but complaining. And Pharisees should have functioned like shepherds for God's people. Those who should have been the shepherds for God's people react with complaints, but the true shepherd reacts with compassion. And this kind of story, this kind of way of thinking, this kind of upside-down reversal in God's kingdom is a threat to any and all of us who want to stand on our own merit. And it was especially a threat to these Pharisees. You're not doing it the way we want it done, Jesus. Another word for complaining, some of our translations say it this way, mumbling or murmuring. I like this idea that some of us might have a heart murmur. You have a heart murmur from time to time. You never say it out loud. I mean, what is that person doing? They don't, they don't deserve God's grace. Look at how much they've screwed up. And we would never say that out loud, but there's kind of this subtle thing happening within us where we think I'm better than that person. There's a heart murmur in the hearts of these Pharisees, these religious elites, these people who think that they've jockeyed themselves into a position to be good enough for God. And like them, some of us haven't yet figured out that it isn't about us. We might walk into a room expecting to have someone broadcast how great we are instead of how important they are. People who hide their sin and pretend they are righteous aren't ready. They don't have ears to hear because they don't know they're lost. People whose sin has been public and who are known as sinners have nothing left to lose. They're ready to receive. So what is it that's, that's going on in these parables? And, and although these are twin parables, they're not identical, okay? I have twins, not identical. 
Uh, it was kind of funny. We have boy-girl twins. It's impossible to have identical boy-girl twins. And we had so many people, upon first meeting them, and saw a boy and a girl ask, are they identical? I don't think you know how this works, but that's okay. These are twin parables. They're not identical. They're communicating something similar, but not the same. And sometimes it's tempting to over-spiritualize every aspect of every story we encounter in the Bible. There are things that are just recorded in God's word that we're not meant to emulate. They might be descriptive and not prescriptive. And some people have especially attempted to do things like this with the parables, taking every detail and trying to extrapolate and apply it to the everyday life of a person in America in 2023. But with each layer of detail, you kind of have to adjust your theology just a little bit to make it fit. And this isn't the intent of the parables. A parable is intended to communicate one singular big idea about what God's kingdom is like. And so we might try to be persuaded to pencil a person into every role in this story. Who is the shepherd or who is the woman? Who is the lost sheep? Who are the 99? Who is the coin? Who are the other nine coins? And I'll admit, like, wrestling with that this week is kind of tricky because it gets really easy to point fingers at people or yourself and say, I'm this and those people are that. But I love this resource, and I'll probably reference it as long as we preach on the parables. I referenced it a few weeks ago. Klein Snodgrass wrote an award-winning commentary on the parables of Jesus. And here's what he says, and I found this fascinating. The early church most often understood the shepherds going to find the sheep as a reference to the incarnation, meaning Jesus becoming human, to recover lost humanity, with the 99 understood as the angels. As in Jesus is leaving heaven leaving those who have no need of his salvation to step into earth to go after the lost. And in that sense, this is how the early church would have interpreted this parable or the medieval ages. In that sense, all of us are the lost sheep. This also could perhaps be a sarcastic statement. Uh, Jesus is speaking to some Pharisees, and as a big fan of sarcasm myself, the Jesus that I know and serve is a big sarcastic person as well. So perhaps that's what he's doing, is taking a jab at some of these Pharisees. That there's more rejoicing in heaven over one lost sinner who repents than the 99 of you who think they have no need to repent. Maybe either one of those are true. But really, these parables are not interested in what happened to the 99 or the 9. Their intent is not to express what's happening to them, but to express the heart of the good shepherd going after the one. Let's not complicate this more than it needs to be. The, the plot structure of Jesus' parables are intended to be simple. It's like a Hallmark movie. You know how it's going to end when it begins. Rugged, handsome young man lives in the country. CEO of her own business experiences some distress. Moves to said countryside. They fall in love. Right, like You can make up the rest of this. You know how this is going to end. They'll have a small conflict. They'll reunite. Right? You know how the story ends. Let's not complicate the stories of Jesus more than they are intended to be. These parables illustrate what God and his kingdom are like, but they do not inform us of every aspect in detail. Jesus will use the phrase often, the kingdom of heaven is like. It's a simile. He doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is. So the, says the kingdom of heaven is like. These are meant to be similes to help us see what things are like. And the, these parables are a how much more analogy. 
if a woman will search diligently for a lost coin, how much more will God diligently search for his lost people? And I love this thought from Snodgrass as well. Ancient texts should not be asked to deal with all of our contemporary issues. Like, we don't need to take our life in 2023 and overlay it on the parables of Jesus and try to make sense of everything that's happening here. No, we should just go straight to the text and its context and say, okay, what is the big truth I'm meant to receive? When you ask questions of the Scripture, it is not intended to answer. You'll make up the answer you wanted in the first place and read it into the Scripture. Both of these uh, parables function in the same way. Both assume the presence of the kingdom, that in Jesus' ministry, God is at work to redeem his people and to fulfill his promises to restore Israel. And both present a defense of Jesus' association with tax collectors and sinners and show that those complaining about his actions revealed their lack of understanding of God's attitude and actions. If that is the character of our God, it should be our character as well. These parables do not tell us how to search for the lost, but they do imply that we should. Unfortunately, sometimes we have strange ideas of what that means to search for the lost. Like most of us, when, when we hear about that idea or we think about the idea of evangelism, you have an image of someone accosting someone else on a street corner, holding up a sign or shouting a message through a megaphone. And what we are intended to experience in these stories we are, we are meant to see and admire the attitude and actions of God towards sinners. Your reaction to God's attitude and activity towards sinners reveals your initiation in his kingdom. Some of us love the message. Some of us gather to complain about it. I told you I got lost all the time as a kid. I really did. I mean, any location, uh, Walmart, uh, Aldi, it's really hard to get lost in Aldi. That, I mean, the whole store is smaller than this room. And I could do it. Um, I got lost at, at uh, Silver Dollar City, uh, in any place. Uh, one of the most uh, memorable times of getting lost, though, was at SeaWorld. I was about three and a half years old. Uh, my brother Daniel would have been five and a half or six. And my younger brother Caleb would have been about six months old. And so there we are, a little family of five. We're at SeaWorld sea experiencing it together, and there's this large play area, and all these kids, hundreds of kids, all playing together on some different equipment. And Joel saw something shiny and wandered off. Uh, there's probably something in a gift shop or something that caught my attention, and so I wandered off. And then it didn't take but a few minutes, and I realized I have no idea where my parents are. And it didn't take my mom long either to realize I have no idea where my son is. And I was talking to my mom about this this week. I just say, what do you remember about that moment? And it's a feeling that every parent in the room knows because no, no matter what you want the people around you to think about you as a parent, your child has walked off before and they've been lost and you know the feeling. Panic. Like your heart just sinks. And that's what my mom said. She remembers feeling this panic that sets in and then she made this incredible line. I think this parallels so well with our parable today. There were hundreds of other kids playing. And not once did the thought enter her mind, oh, it's okay that I don't know where my son is. Look at all these kids who are having such a great time. Some of you are wondering, how does the story end? <laughs> I, I'm here, okay? <laughs> like, 
it, it ended okay. I found a security guard. I knew the protocol. I'd gotten lost enough times. Like, okay, what am I supposed to do next? Um, but I, I love I that my mom said that. Like the joy was in being reunited with her son. There, there wasn't the, the joy of all the other kids playing, including my other brothers, didn't matter in that moment because her son was lost. This is what we're meant to see about our God. And few things are more important than our perception of God, for from that understanding we perceive our own identity how we should think and act, and how the world ought to be. If God is a seeking, caring God, then his grace should characterize our self-perception and treatment of other people. And it's, it's as if Jesus is saying this to the religious people who are challenging his idea of sharing a meal with sinners. Your claim to know God is not supported by you complaining about his attitude and activity towards these sin, sinful people. The whole of Scripture underscores that God is the one who takes the initiative. And that's what we see in both of these parables. <clears throat> Any action of humans is a response to the grace of God. Yet the whole of Scripture also insists that humans do indeed act. I love this line. Salvation is entirely the work of God, in which we are entirely involved. There's a huge difference between responding to the grace of God and trying to make oneself look right. Now, in, in every family, there are finders and there are people who lose things. <laughs> in our family, my wife is the finder, which makes me a loser, okay? Um, I'll admit that. But God is a finder. You are not the kind of thing that goes missing and goes unnoticed. You're not disposable. You're not interchangeable. You're not replaceable. And you matter as much to God as anyone else. He's desperate to have you again. In her book, A Field Guide to Getting Lost, Rebecca Solnit tells the story of her friend Sally who's part of a branch of a search and rescue team in the Rocky Mountains, and Sally still remembers the frantic search for a lost 11-year-old boy who was deaf and losing his eyesight. The boy wandered off during a late afternoon game of hide-and-seek, and because he was deaf, he was particularly hard to find. He had been blowing a whistle given to him for just such an occasion, but could not hear how close he was, those looking for him, because he was right by a nearby stream, and the roar of the water made the signal impossible to reach those who were listening for him. After a harrowing night on his own, the sun came up and started blowing his whistle again. The search and rescue team finally found him, very cold, but okay. And Sally and the other search and rescue experts say that the key to survival often hinges on one thing, knowing and admitting that you are lost. She says that's why kids are found more often than adults. Kids don't stray as far. They usually curl up in a sheltered place and wait for their rescuers. Unlike many adults who get lost in the Rockies, kids don't desperately try to save themselves. Instead, they aren't afraid to stop and admit that they need help. Remember that invitation from Jesus? Be like a child to receive my kingdom. 
The thing that marks a child when they're lost is knowing and admitting that they're lost. God is a finder. You're not the kind of thing that goes missing and goes unnoticed. And so the question is not, will he find you? The question is, will you let yourself be found? Mark Scott says that we should pay attention to the strange twist in all of the parables because that's when God's character, his grace, his love are most vividly revealed. But there's a surprise. And for those listening, for those on the receiving end, it was the joy with which the one recovering what had been lost walks home with. It's the shepherd who has the sheep on his shoulders as he walks back into his home and invites all of his friends to share in his joy. It's the woman who, upon searching and sweeping and seeking and moving all the furniture throughout her house, finally finds the lost coin and in her joy welcomes all of her friends to have a party. That is a strange twist. It seems excessive. Mark Scott says this. I have this quote on the screen for us today. Volition matters more than cognition. Now, for those of us who don't have a doctor in front of our name like him, here's what that means. You need to hear it. You don't have to understand it. And how many, how many times uh, have you said that to your kids? You don't have to understand what I'm saying. You don't have to believe me, but you do need to do what I'm saying. I have that conversation so often. We have three toddlers. I mean, every single day, that's, that is the crux of our conversations. I know you don't understand why you can't hit your sisters, buddy. But I'm going to hit you if you hit them again. <laughs> Not really, okay? You don't have to understand it. God's grace is impossible to understand. But you do need to hear his heart. Those who have ears to hear should listen. Can we simply marvel at the mystery of God's goodness? Can we be okay with things not being quite the way we think they should be? Man, we are, we're so consumed sometimes with this idea of fair. We want life to be fair. And we think God should be fair. I just, I really don't think that's true. We don't want a fair God. We want a just God. I was reminded of this yesterday. I got to ref a few fifth and sixth grade basketball games over at the middle school. And I don't know if you've watched fifth and sixth grade uh, kids play basketball before. It's not the most clean game, okay? Every player has a violation on every play. And, and I, know, I know you think your kids are just amazing, and they are, but they travel, okay? They just, they do. Um, and and I, I find it interesting when I get feedback uh, from coaches as I'm refing an upward basketball game about what I should call and what I shouldn't. Well, you called that on them, but not on him. Yeah, I, do, I really don't think you understand what you're asking. You're asking for me to be totally and completely fair, which actually isn't best for everybody involved. We think we want a God who is fair, but what that would mean for us is way worse than we could ever imagine. Some of us know what Bitcoin is. Some of us think I just cursed in a different language. Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency. It is a digital token that represents value. That's, I, that's the only, it, Dusty is the Bitcoin expert on staff, so if you have questions, you can talk to him in the prayer corner. Um, uh, Stefan Thomas, a programmer in San Francisco, has two guesses left 
at his key to unlock his Bitcoin. Back when Bitcoin was, was first being mined and programmed and created by computers, uh, people were buying it at alarming rates. And, and the amount of Bitcoin that's on this hard drive that he could cash in for real American dollar, dollars is somewhere between 160 and $200 million right now. It's been as valuable as about $600 million when Bitcoin boomed about a year ago. And the password that he set that he can't remember is required to unlock this small hard drive. It's known as an iron key, and that hard drive contains 7,002 Bitcoin. Mr. Thomas wrote the password down on a small piece of paper and doesn't remember where it is. And he has two guesses left because this hard drive is built in such a way that if you put in the password wrong 10 times, it will encrypt every file on the hard drive, rendering it useless forever. He would say this, I would just lay in bed and think about it. Then I'd go to the computer with some new strategy and it wouldn't work, and I'd be desperate again. Laying in bed all night, wondering what that password was. He said, I finally had to put that hard drive in a watertight bag and bury it in my backyard so I couldn't see it anymore because it just consumed him. Here's the thing. You realize Jesus, when he thinks about lost people, lays awake in bed at night? That's a metaphor, okay? But it keeps him up. It eats at him. And he wants nothing more than those who are lost to be found. The awareness that God brings us freedom and confidence, that his grace is to be determined by how we treat others, that we should be caring and sensitive. We tend to know these truths abstractly, but they're not often translated into practice, either in how we view ourselves or how we treat others or how we arrange church life. Here's some more of, of Snodgrass as he talks about the culmination of these parables and the joy that we find in them. Christian worship often lacks any sense of joy. It may have form or tradition or energy or novelty, but joy is in short supply. Joy deserves focus as the true mark of Christianity, for it is directly connected with the theological awareness of the character and attitude of God as one who seeks and celebrates recovery. At some level, Christian worship entails entering into God's own attitude at finding and establishing a people for himself. The true mark of a Christian is joy. Joy at the recovery of what had been lost. And when what makes God happy makes you happy, that's when you really know who he is. And if I could be, if I could be honest just for a moment, I'm not sure that the word that anyone would use to characterize this room as we worship is joy. And I, I so desperately want it to be. I see reverence. I, I see solemnity. I see uprightness. I see devoutness. But I don't know that I see joy. I don't know if I see this, this expression of overwhelming emotion towards the goodness of God. When Jesus would heal people, when he'd mend their legs and they could finally walk again, what did they do? They ran, jumped, sang. They could not help but express what had happened to them. And man, if I could just invite, could we be a people of joy? 
eager to join in the joy of Jesus as he's been recovering lost people. One of the phrases that um, I heard repeated over this summer, I got to work with some different college students at some events, and one of the things that their superiors would say to them all the time is, hey, tell your face you're happy. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I thought it was good too. Tell your face you're happy. Like, are you happy? We say, yes, I'm, I'm happy, very happy with how my life is going. Like, tell your face. Let other people know. Joy is contagious, and when we inject joy into a situation, it becomes impossible to not replicate everything. I, I heard a preacher uh, tell this line. He was known as being incredibly joyful and happy all the time, and, and, and somebody asked him, do you ever wake up grumpy? And he said, no, I let her sleep in. <clears throat> here's the deal. I think if Jesus was in the room today, and he is, we as his bride, I think he'd give us a nudge to say, hey, we've been a little grumpy. We've been a little bit of arms folded and and frowns on our faces, and, and you've said you're happy about being here, but could we just tell our faces we're happy? Can we just express our worship and our our wonder at the God whose grace we don't understand, who goes after the one, who is desperate to have his children home again? Could we announce with all that we are the joy that fills our being? Joy marks these parables, but there's a second thing too, and it's repentance. See, it's not just the recovery of what was lost, but Jesus will, as he's expressing the meaning of the parable, say there's more joy over one who repents. It's a simple Greek word. It's the Greek word metanueo. And it comes from the root root word nous, which which means mind. So metanueo, or repent, simply means to change one's mind or to go in the other direction. Jesus says those who have been recovered, those who were lost and who are now found, or those who have changed their mind, and instead of trying to get further away from God, are now eager to come back to him. So there's, there's two different kinds of people in the room this morning, and I hope no matter where you find yourself, you'll receive this message from these parables today. Some of us have never been close to God. In fact, maybe right now you never have felt so far away from him as you do right now, and you feel lost. Maybe you didn't even know it until right now, but like you've always known it at the same time. And no matter what else you've tried to do to medicate, whatever it might be, you can't eradicate this pain, this absence, this profound lack in your life, and you desperately need to just sit down right where you are and say, I am lost. Can I just remind you that Jesus is not the one who complains about how far sinners have gone. He's the one who with compassion in his heart chases after all of us. He is for you. He loves you. You're not the kind of thing that goes missing and goes unnoticed. The question is not can he find you, it's will you let yourself be found. And the other person in the room today Maybe you find yourself in this category. Maybe you're like me. You've seen yourself in both categories at different stages in your life. You are offended at the grace that Jesus extends. Maybe you wouldn't say that out loud, but there's kind of this heart murmur 
you've been a good person. You don't have the reputation of a sinner. And somehow you've talked yourself into this line of thinking that there's some kind of accolade or applause that is due to you. And we may have masked this trueness about us with a false humility and pride, but the truth is you don't want to welcome sinners with compassion. You'd rather cross your arms and complain. Because everything isn't just how you want it. Man, please hear me. I am there so much more often than I ever care to admit. Just as much grace is required to forgive you as anyone else. Won't you come and join Jesus in his joy? Let's stand and worship.